When you think of Timbuktu, what comes to mind? A faraway place? Maybe the definition of a faraway place. From here to Timbuktu, that's how the saying goes, a place so far away, it might as well be mythical. Except Timbuktu is a real place, and only as far away as you are from it. Sure, it's far if you're in, say, Kalamazoo. But if you're in Western Africa, well, then it's just right over there, in the country of Mali. And as for its slightly mythic feel, well, there may be something to that. Because Timbuktu has a rich history. Rich in a literal sense, as a place that once housed great wealth. But also rich as a scholarly hub, which was at its peak from the 1300s to the end of the 1500s. And how do we know the story of this ancient, magnificent city? through its famed collection of manuscripts, which, like the city, have become the stuff of legend. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're going to Timbuktu to explore the intellectual legacy of one of the world's most misunderstood cities. More after this. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself. You might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This sort of connotation of Timbuktu as this faraway, imaginary, almost mythical, impossible to reach location has been going on for quite a while. That is Dr. Susanna Malines Lateras. I'm associate researcher at the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Dr. Malines Lateras told us that the mythical city narrative actually begins with the story of one of the richest humans ever to live, a man by the name of Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa was the king of the Mali Empire, an Islamic empire that existed from 1200 to 1700 in Western Africa. And Mansa Musa, like all Muslims, was required to make his pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. Around 1320, he made that trip. 
But as the richest human alive at the time, he did it big. And on his way there, he stopped in Egypt. And the chronicles of the time record that the caravan that he took with him consisted of more than 100 camels, the incredible amounts of wealth and gold specifically. Mansa Musa's caravan to Mecca consisted of tens of thousands of people, and each of the 100-plus camels he brought carried roughly 300 pounds of gold. Mansa Musa would end up giving away this gold pretty freely. When his caravan stopped in Egypt, he allegedly gave away so much gold that the value of gold dropped, and it took 12 years to recover. So yeah, Mansa Musa was rich. And the story of Mansa Musa's wealth spread far beyond the borders of Africa. And this was written not only in Arabic chronicles, but then these were translated into European languages. And so this myth about West Africa being this kind of El Dorado, you know, this land of riches um, yet to be unexplored, yet to be known, began to develop. And that myth of the unreachable Timbuktu would grow even larger when the Portuguese and the rest of the European powers began exploring Western Africa in the 1400s. And they started hearing stories about this city of great wealth and prestige. These so-called great explorers really began this idea that they have to reach this idea of where no man has reached before. Of course, this is completely false. There were plenty of people there before, plenty of travelers that had always reached there. But because Europeans themselves hadn't reached it um, in a long time, then it became almost an obsession. The European obsession with Timbuktu peaked in the 1800s when countries like England and France funded expeditions into the African continent to find Timbuktu. And weirdly, the legend of it being this far-off, impossible-to-reach place remained even after Europeans reached it. But Timbuktu's actual location also played a major role in the city's rise. See, Timbuktu lies tucked between the Niger River and the Sahara Desert. So the location was really central in terms of trade because you had the different boats and sort of goods that traveled upstream in the boats that were traded and then, of course, carried through the desert on the caravans from Timbuktu further up to different points in North Africa, be it what is today Morocco or Tunisia or Libya and so on. So that caravan trade fostered incredible amounts of wealth. Um, and of course, many of these goods not only went to North Africa, but also goods traded into southern, um, you know, uh, Central Africa, but also reached Europe. So despite being hard for European explorers to find, it was really easy for everyone local to get there. And all of this trade leads to Timbuktu becoming an economic hub, a city bustling with traders and merchants, and it all contributed to the scholarly growth of the city as well. So it is very often we find that many of the merchants of Timbuktu were patrons of certain scholars. So scholars, because of the wealth of the city, scholars had a degree of autonomy to be able to dedicate to scholarly uh, ventures. Scholarship in Timbuktu wasn't so much based on the prestige of one or even a few universities, like the way a city like Boston is. It was less about its institutions and more about the reputation of its teachers. 
And because of this, Timbuktu had a huge population of students for its time. I mean, there's even been estimates that at a certain point as it height, it had as much as 10,000 students. I mean, you can imagine in one city, 10,000 students of higher learning. All of these students and all of these prestigious scholars left behind an enormous legacy in the form of the Timbuktu manuscripts. The Timbuktu manuscripts cover a wide range of subjects. And they aren't exactly books because there isn't any binding. Technically, the Timbuktu manuscripts are just many, many sheets of paper. But they contain the intellectual records of the city. Beyond articles by scholars, some of the manuscripts contain ledgers of business transactions, poetry, stories, other forms of written work. And Dr. Melina Slateras has been studying Timbuktu's manuscripts for the last 15 years, all as part of something called the Timbuktu Manuscripts Project. You have everything. You have grammar. You have syntax. You have rhetoric. You have literature. And then, of course, law. Law is a huge part of, of, of the manuscript cultures. You have manuscripts that deal with sort of scientific type of subjects in the sense of what was at the time sort of astronomy, also astrology, medicinal texts. So what sort of plants and different uh, were being used for, ail- you know, different ailments and remedies. And Dr. Melina Sluteris says that some of the most useful manuscripts to researchers are the most boring everyday documents. So, I mean, one really valuable range of documents is, for example, letters, letters that were sent by different scholars at at different periods to other scholars, to rulers, to all sorts of people. And then things such as wills, things such as lists of things that merchants would buy and trade and sell, things such as testaments, that show the sale of goods, what people had when they died, property records, what was being sold. And these, of course, are invaluable for historians to try to understand what was, you know, the different histories of Timbuktu in different periods. And these manuscripts were written over the entire span of Timbuktu's existence as a great city, a period of about 500 years, starting around the 1100s. Scholars say that the beginning of Timbuktu's decline came when the city was conquered by the Moroccans in 1591. And Timbuktu was never the same from that point on. It was almost always under the thumb of a foreign power afterwards. And what remain from the city's height are just a few buildings and the manuscripts. And today, those famous Timbuktu manuscripts are held all over the world. A large amount are in private collections, uh, some of which are still in the ownership of the descendants of the original Timbuktu scholars. Some are in museums around the world, and some are still in Ahmed Baba Institute in Timbuktu. And each of these documents holds a clue to the history of one of the great ancient cities. Ancient Timbuktu will never be rebuilt, but a new story about the city can still be told. I think what is very important is for us to change our, how we view history and our points of reference. And we need to stop always taking the Western point of reference. Um, And unfortunately, this idea of the mythical Timbuktu is really created from that European standpoint. Because if you look for an African perspective, even from a wider Islamic perspective, 
Timbuktu is known as a center of learning. It's really remarkable that if you think in the 1400s, you had students that would come from very far just to study in Timbuktu with their local teachers, um, students from North Africa, students from, from Egypt, from all over, just to study in Timbuktu because of the fame of its scholars, that should recenter our thinking um, away from European modes of understanding world history. I think um, taking perspectives that are not European is, is, is central to, to rebalance our perspective um, of world history. Unfortunately, the manuscripts in Timbuktu are pretty difficult to visit at the moment. They are in the north of Mali, which isn't especially safe or stable right now. But one way you can check out the Timbuktu manuscripts is digitally through a project from a consortium of Africa-based organizations and UNESCO called Mali Magic. That's Mali like the country, M-A-L-I, magic. And it has digital versions of thousands of the manuscripts, all available to see online. This episode was produced by Baudelaire Seuss. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Sarah Kaplan, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.